Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores from movies, TV shows, and video games. I am, as always, Don, and I am once again joined by my co-hosts, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. Howdy doody. Hey, and I'm sometimes Jason, and today I'm Jason. Ah, it's a good day to be Jason today, I think. So for uh, today's episode, we just finished up an episode where we were talking about some video game soundtracks and scores that we really loved as as youth, we really loved today, and we still had a ton more to talk about. So what we thought we would do is continue on with that conversation and talk a little bit more about video game music that uh, we just can't stop listening to, has some sort of meaning to us. Whatever we're going to be discussing today, it is going to be video game related. So uh, we are basically going to jump into that uh, shortly. But as we are uh, now going to be starting to do is just to talk about what we've been doing for the last couple weeks since our last record and what have we been listening to what has uh, really sort of piqued our interest and uh, I think what I'm going to do is I'll kick us off first today. Of course, we saw the Golden Globes uh, released recently, and uh, the Golden Globe for uh, Best Soundtrack or Score went to Joker, and the composer for that is a... Woman named Hilda! Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, with a very, very Gorenson? long, complicated last name. I'm going to find the official pronunciation of this, because I don't want to m- mess it up, because it's... Fantastic to see a very male-dominated industry um, mm-hmm. see some some female success here in a uh, really great category. So we are looking at Hildur Gudna de Tur. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm, remember, mm-hmm. I think it was Bill Burr or something like murdered that name as he was like reading some of the uh, awards uh, for the Grammys or whatever. So fun times. It's a tricky name. Uh, obviously, pronunciation of names is really important these days. We want to make sure that people get the proper credit. But congrats to Hildur there. The The score of that movie, I think, is one of the really great elements of that film. I don't know how I really particularly feel about Joker. I'm kind of back and forth. It's really odd. It's really out there. It's the, I mean, we're talking about the classic Joker character, but completely twisted. And the way that we're, they're taking Joker uh, recently just kind of, I don't know what to think about it. I know it's a very controversial, it's kind of that hot button topic with a lot of individuals when it comes to comic books and the the lore and the history there or just movie making. Obviously with um, Joaquin Phoenix and his portrayal, we have uh, other portrayals of Joker obviously going against there. Some very successful, like obviously we look at Heath Ledger with his success, his posthumous Oscar, uh, a fantastic performance in The Dark Knight versus uh, someone like Jack Nicholson and his campaign performance in Batman. So this is definitely taking things in a really different direction. And again, I'm kind of on the fence. I don't know where I stand there, but the score is outstanding. I think the music really does play into what that movie is trying to achieve. It's edgy. It's got some really interesting takes here and there, and I really do enjoy it. So congrats to Hildor on her victory. I'm hoping that as we start to get into Oscar season, we are still seeing successes and we're still seeing things happen for women in in the movie soundtrack industry and things continue to move forward. More women get more opportunities. That is what has really interested me this week, really uh, looking into Joker and the successes there of Hildor and uh, her score. I never saw the movie. Did you, Jason? I did not, no. Yeah. I didn't want to. I heard a lot going into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned Hildur, is that that was the number one thing that I took away from the feedback, was that everybody was like, the score is really well done. And so I'm glad to, I haven't had a chance to listen to it. I love the Joker character. Like, the Joker character is a classic character, and he's a... He's a really messed up character. So, like, there's no, like, easy way to put him on screen. And, you know, whatever the feelings around Joker, I'm super glad that Hildor is, like, coming away from this as a big name. Because, agreed, female representation in the the soundtrack biz is few and far between. Mm -hmm. So, yes. um, uh, I guess I'll... Or no, Jason, what do you want to say? What's going on? Uh, well, so I, I feel bad. I don't have any great uh, soundtrack or score to, to talk about uh, in the last couple of weeks. For me, musically, there have been three 
things I think I've kind of pursued since we've had our last uh, recording. You know, really trying to wrap my head. This is kind of a continuation of what we were talking about a couple weeks ago with me. Trying to wrap my head around all of the stuff that uh, Herbie Hancock did. I Like, I started doing some, like, random uh, internet readings on, like, articles where he's talking about, like, stuff that was important to him. And in the process of doing that, you know, like, there's been so many times where he's sort of reinvented himself and sort of twisted jazz or maybe not twisted because that makes it sound negative, but really bent jazz to what he wanted it to be at that particular moment. I stumbled upon Vinyl Me Please, and this really isn't an ad for them, but it turns out they are producing a uh, box set of his work that comes out next month. And I saw that and I was like, okay, this is great. Seven of those eight albums I don't have. And it turns out that all of these are supposed to be like slightly better pressings than like what's easily found now. So I was like, all right, let me do this. And then I had to, you know, rationalize the price of it because it's not exactly a cheap box set. Then I found out via the Instagrams that one of my favorite newer groups, Hiatus Coyote, has a new album coming out later on into the summer. And they had their pre-orders up. So I was like, okay, let me give you my money too. So that's been done. And I feel like there was a third thing, but in any event, it's, it's kind of that. So... No great soundtrack to talk about per se, but some music I'm really excited about having in my collection in the not-too-distant future. Nice. Jason is the epitome of the Fry Futurama, just take my money, shut up and take my money. <laughs> He's just firing it all over, just a big fist with money and cash held out for, for anything that's coming out here recently. Listen, I've fallen, uh, not fallen for, I've given in to the Vinyl Me Please desires for specific albums because they are, their pressings are really good. And unfortunately, they actually just announced that they're increasing their price. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, I, I totally feel you on that price. I, I purchased my albums before that and I know there was a huge backlash to their price increase, <laughs> which, you know, like they're a business and so I get, but it was too rich for my blood. Like there's some stuff that they've put out that I want, but I'm like, sorry, I can't afford it right now. Yeah, it is. It's like, but I totally get you on the box set. There's... Oh, God, that's going to be so nice. Especially when you find albums that are good repressings that you want. Well, some of the albums in the set are some that aren't even available in this country because they were recorded in Japan or whatever. So I'm like, I'm super psyched about that. I'm just like, okay, well, here we go. (laughs) <laughs> guys nice. i'm gonna i'm gonna open probably a pandora's box here when i ask this question but i think it's mm. it's needed tell me Ooh. about the the differences in pressings when it comes to vinyl so for someone who has absolutely no perspective on vinyl which is myself i'd like to know what you try to look for when it comes to different pressings is it audio quality is it what is it exactly so This is a complicated topic, and it's something that I'm coming to appreciate more as I get deeper into the hobby. You know, making a vinyl record is obviously a very mechanical process, right? You've got this slab of plastic, you've got the source material, whether it's like the original master, whether it's like a a digital copy of the master, or something like that. And then you have the actual physical process of carving out the little grooves necessary for the turntable to make the sound accurately. And some places, I mean, some record labels, some remet, like if it's a, a second or a third copy of an album, do it better than others. So, you know, in comparing certain releases, some may actually sound better than others. And certain certain places, you know, like Vinyl Me Pleased or some other, you know, manufacturers, I think like there's a, a company that produces that has like a pretty good reputation, certain like Blue Note, like for the jazz, like certain releases are regarded as better sounding than others. Like, for example, I've heard people talk about the 75th anniversary uh, repressings of certain things being better than like certain newer pressings. So for me, most of the time, I try not to worry, like the the sound quality thing right now for me is a bonus. There are so many things I just don't have in my collection that if I see it, I'm grabbing it. But if there's the promise of a potentially better sounding copy that's, you know, accessible, yeah, I'm going to go for that all day. And I don't know if Anthony has more stuff to add on that. 
Yeah, as I understand it, Japanese pressings uh, are just in really high quality because when vinyl really started to take off, that was where a lot of vinyl pressing plants were established in Japan. And Japan would also do its own pressings of things. Instead of taking in, pardon me, North American pressing and just do their own, they uh, and repeat that, they would do their own pressing of it. So I think that's like... For me, a lot of the uh, drive to get a Japanese pressing is the packaging, is the pressing. It tends to be a little bit more uh, one note and like, not one note, but like specialized editions type thing. So I know that they're very sought after, but also because of the quality. For me, I'm a big fan of repressings too. Like I think the thing with original pressings is that people really like it for value. And they can say they have an original pressing of this, whatever. It's, it's the first edition, like, from the yes. book world. Totally. It is, it's, yes. I, I got this when it first came out, yep. or I found it because I wanted to seek it out. Yeah, it makes complete sense in that. Totally. Yeah. And I have, like, a couple that are, like, high on my list of things that I want to get. Because mm-hmm. I was like, I'd love an original copy of it. Because, specifically, they're soundtracks from the year 1990 and 1991, which is when vinyl ceased production. Oh. So, um... Specifically, the Edward Scissorhands soundtrack and the Adams Family Value soundtrack are two, like, vinyl pressings that are, like, literally of the last original run of the 90s. So that, for me, is an appeal because, as a record collector, I want to find those. But if there's a repressing of either of those albums, I'm getting it. And I have the Edward Scissorhands. I'm just waiting for the Adams Family one. So, like, I'm a big fan of repressings because I was like, sometimes they can actually do it better if they get the original, like, sound cop- uh, sound-, sound files and they're able to... To do a better repressing, I'm on board. I don't know. I, I you did open a Pandora's box question, but I think it can be later explained when you get your first record player, Dom. And I'm sure we would have Join so much us. advice to give you when you uh, get ready to pull that trigger. That's Join when, us, Don. That's when we start doing our, our secondary episodes. Don the yes, Vinyl Virgin. Exactly. And then, I, it seems like it's one of those things. And for me, that's kind of classic with my stuff. Like when I get into something, I can jump into it pretty head first and start to, you know, lose thousands upon thousands of points off my credit score because I've just spent it. Uh-huh. So yeah, it makes yeah. complete sense. It's a money suck. It can be for yes. sure. Yeah. Okay, I want to tell you guys what I've been listening to, and yes, then we can do. get into yes. the like, grooves of it. Yeah. But um, I've been listening to a lot of Disney music, Okay. Um, and it's because I watched Moana for the first time, and true to form, I usually, uh, I'm usually on the nose of like pop culture stuff, I can be like really on top of it, but every once in a while something slips through the cracks and I just completely miss it, and Moana was that for me, like, that movie was huge, it was all over the place, like everybody knows... I had zero clue of it. So we watched it. It was really good. And the music was so good. Mm -hmm. Lin-Manuel Miranda. And he just created something that was super special. Authentic to, I think, a lot of Aboriginal and, like, Native music and a Polynesian and South Asian American. I was just like, this is such a beautiful experience. But it's led me into realizing that Disney released a villain songbook last year. It's an electronic album that's all the villain music from the Disney movies. Like from Queen of Hearts and Robin Hood all the way up into Shiny from Moana. And it is an album. Like, I'm a huge Disney fan and it definitely is piquing my interest that I wanted to do a Disney uh, episode or several episodes. But, oh my god, there's some really good villain music. I think... You can make the case that the best music in Disney music and um, Disney movies is the villain music. In trouble with his luck. <laughs> you little Sammy Dummy mini god. Ouch, what a terrible performance. Get the hook. Get it? You don't swing it like you used to, man. Yet I have to give you credit for my start. I think you could make the case that anything villain-related is the most interesting element of a movie or TV show. You, Those villain characters have so much to work with. They have so much scenery to chew. They can be so crazy, mm-hmm. as we kind of discussed with Joker. Of the recent Batman movies, 
I mean, Joker is the most interesting thing to come out of them with Dark Knight, with what Ben just Affleck was. Just say it's was... Jared Leto. You're just trying not to say Jared Leto. I'm trying not to, but it's, <laughs> it's definitely the most interesting components of those movies. Like what came out of Suicide Squad was this really odd take of Jared Leto's Joker. I haven't seen the Snyder Cut yet, and I don't know if I Oh, me can. neither. So I don't know what he's done with Joker there, but of recent, I mean, Joker is one of those interesting characters and it's more, he, he seems to be more important than the Batman character. So villains have a ton more and Disney is absolutely no exception. I mean, what's, what Scar was doing in Lion King, I mean, what we were seeing now with Cruella de Vil in the original 101 Dalmatians and now with Emma Stone reprising the character as kind of an origin story focus. Which I am super excited for. Just based on the fact that the end of that movie mm -hmm. is going to end with a woman being like, I want to kill a whole bunch of puppies. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think that is a bold move. There is no way you can undo that connection to the movie is that she is full on puppy killer. Yep. Yeah. And so I'm absolutely fascinated by that movie. I'm going to be on board and in line. Because I am so interested to want to see they ha how they're going to handle that and how they're going to incorporate justifying a, a character that is going to kill puppies. <laughs> that's going to be a fine dance, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I for sure. <laughs> and even and I think what exactly uh, excites me is if it's done really well and they're able to execute it, all the power to them. Like that's great. Uh, and if not, I have a new movie to make fun of. Hello. <laughs> it's it's huh. a win-win for us either way. So that's the big thing. And then the other thing I've been listening to, and I don't know if we've talked about this, have either of you watched WandaVision? Yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. This is a spoiler warning. Tread lightly as you move forward through the podcast. Now you know. And knowing is half the battle. So Christoph Beck, uh, who is the he's the Oscar winner from Frozen, he uh, created the music for that show, and I cannot stop listening to all of the music from each episode. And the best part is Spotify has picked up my Disney villain song algorithm and has. 100% incorporated Agatha all along into my, like, plays. So no matter what's happening, at some point, Agatha all along is coming on, and you just hear me being like, yes! That's like, that is my That is my new favorite song. I Like, that is just such an incredible journey, and for that reveal to happen, yeah, Agatha all along has been really creeping up, and it's staying on my listening uh so i'm really interested to see what's going to happen with my end of the year spotify i think with wandavision we would be remiss if we didn't mention Kristen anderson lopez and robert lopez the work that they did into each of the different eras of tv wandavision theme songs was amazing i mean to oh drift back to dick van dyke to go all the way up until like the malcolm in the middle or i guess we should go forward into the 80s with kind of that family ties theme yeah, yeah, then yeah. into malcolm in the middle and I, what they did and there's this great documentary now on disney plus called assembled and they between wandavision and falcon and the winter soldier they released the making of wandavision and there's a huge focus on those two creating the individual oh, themes for wandavision and how they took the kind of this the the one single motif and blended it in into each of those theme songs and they just had this idea and they were really on board with what they were doing so yeah all three of those individuals paired them up with uh, christoph beck i mean you've got Disney magic there quite literally into what is happening in WandaVision and the music and the the theme songs there so I'm yes. going to have to check that behind the scenes it's That's amazing it. it's really well done
I believe uh, when WandaVision started uh, that first episode, we were going to have a year where every single week we had something new from Marvel, whether it was TV related or movie related, the documentary like What If is coming out afterwards, then Loki has started to show its trailers. And I think there are some just amazing things coming from the Marvel Cinematic Universe in all different facets now moving forward. But this has been a great catch-up. It's good to catch up with you guys and see what you were up to for the last couple weeks since our last record. But let's go ahead and jump into our first, uh, our main segment here and start talking about the video games that we wanted to maybe talk about in the last episode that we just didn't have a chance to get to. But before we jump right into our video game soundtrack discussion, we want to take a break and tell you about another podcast you should be listening to. We love ourselves a good movie song here at Even the Score, and so do Diedrich, Alex, and Ben over at the podcast that song from that movie. I've just finished listening to their episode on Sarah McLaughlin's hauntingly beautiful When She Loved Me from Toy Story 2. It's such a great song, and that song from that movie talk about the song, the movie, and much more. Phil Collins winning the Oscar that year over her was a travesty that I'll never get over. Go and find that song from that movie on your podcast app of choice. Subscribe, rate and review their show, and follow them on Twitter at TSFTMPod. That's at TSFTMPod. Now, let's fire up our consoles and talk a little video game music. Who wants to kick off? I will then. <laughs> <laughs> I was being polite. <laughs> utter, utter silence. <laughs> I know that was like definitely a, a teacher class moment. Yeah. Who wants just... to come up and talk? Well, the uh, good part is you can edit that out. So it's very true. You know, I mean, <laughs> it'll just I'll just seamlessly just... go in. <laughs> exactly. It was Don all the time. It was Don all along. It was Don all along. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And uh-huh. I killed Sparky, too. <laughs> <laughs> Which ties in perfectly to our Cruella de Vil discussion. Oh, See? Time is a flat circle here. Well, speaking to all the animal lovers, I'm not going to talk about killing puppies or anything like that. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I'm, I'm definitely going to be uh, courting that demographic. Now so. who's pandering to the fans? Uh, hey, yeah. hey, <laughs> as a fur baby parent, I, I yes. Fair. So when we stopped uh, talking about soundtracks in our last episode, my list, I was kind of gradually progressing through my adolescence and getting into my early adulthood. And uh, with my third selection, I was getting into later adulthood and kind of more established into what I will be for a good period of time. And my gaming tastes haven't exactly changed a ton like i'm still into the same games that i would have been into or were into when i was young but i think pacing has definitely changed for me and and understanding that i am not an individual who is so keen on going online and doing things virtually and trying to turn all of my games into uh, this multiplayer activity so for me when i got into minecraft i didn't get into it in the same way that some individuals do i mean you can find communities and deep dive into the things that are going on in that game and the stuff that can be constructed i just found it fascinating because i I had come from such a a hardcore gamer sort of mentality and to basically go from 60 to zero where you're just kind of go, 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 go. And yeah, Oblivion kind of allows you to slow down, but it still has its exciting like tumultuous times and your the music kicks in and things go all crazy. Minecraft doesn't have that vibe for me. It just has this really casual, calm vibe. And the music that was done by uh, Daniel Rosenfeld, or as he's known as C418, um, the music is so great and so fits the mood of just the relaxed nature of Minecraft and how it's all about exploration and discovery and building and creating and trying to expand the horizons as to what Minecraft Steve is trying to do in the game. 
And I really do respect what he's been able to do with that music and just how subtle and simplistic and minimalist it is. And I think it has this huge impact on what the game is trying to to put out there and what the game is trying to represent. So listening to that music is, it's one of those experiences that again, we've talked about a ton, how we can just kind of put it on in the background, do things to it, or just veg out to it. And I think there's some really great tracks there. Kotaku, a a video game review and news site uh, in 2011 when it first came out talked about how C418's uh, score is one of the best video game soundtracks of all time uh, or specific or I should say it was one of the best video game soundtracks of that year I think it's now been expanded into one of the best video game soundtracks of all time because it is so different it's it is so outside of the norm as to what you really expect One of the other things that uh, how the soundtrack has been described, uh, in addition to minimalist, it's uh, melancholic and how directly tied um, music is to memories and to this feeling of nostalgia. And C418 uh, has talked about how it was almost unavoidable to be as minimalist as possible with this score because of the music capabilities in the game. I mean, for those of you who haven't played Minecraft, who might be listening, or who haven't seen it, I mean, it's very blocky, it's very 16-bit, it looks like it's a throwback to old games, but it's the the music capabilities of the game are very simplistic, and the, what Rosenfeld had to work with was pretty simple, and he was able to really take it, make the minimalism work for him and for the game and really tie it to this idea of memory and utilizing motifs and familiar music cues even though they're random throughout the game to allow a person to remember back to their early stages of the game and or even when kind of they were first getting into video gaming and really understand the connection to where they are now to where they began. Minecraft is also one of those games that it is going to define a generation. There are is going to be a, this demographic of gamers now who grew up knowing nothing but Minecraft. It'll be one of those touch points or touchstones for gamers moving forward that Minecraft is the epitome. And Minecraft was the the game that that they grew up on. And I think it's generating a lot of really great interest within youth because it's there's a lot of great engineering built into it. There's a lot of great STEM or STEAM implications when it comes to thinking about future careers. Like It's kind of like how kids who built Lego got into becoming designers or innovators or uh, Lego architects. Uh, I think Minecraft is going to have that same interaction because of the way that they design and construct but also then when you get into like redstone and circuitry and building Pokemon Blue into the game like a full working pokemon blue on this massive screen in minecraft and all you have to do is just utilize certain commands and you can move the character around and it's the full game programmed into another game it's the inception uh, kind of factor that that's going on with minecraft and i think it's fantastic and of course we have to think about just the amount of sales that are out there minecraft is the best selling video game of all time there are over 200 million copies sold to date gta 5 is the next with 140 million and GTA 5 has a very specific demographic. I mean, yes, it can appeal to a younger generation, but GTA 5 is, is pretty narrow in its scope in certain elements, whereas Minecraft is extremely broad and can reach out to everybody because it's simplistic and it's minimalist and, and accessible. And the music is going to be a trigger the way that Mega Man 2 is for you, Anthony, or any of the video game soundtracks that I've listened to still. I mean, Minecraft is going to be that for kids, and I think... The music is fantastic. The game is fantastic. Problematic uh, in a ton of different areas. There's huge issues with Notch the Creator. There's um, toxic communities online. That's, I think, unavoidable when you have such a huge base. But I think Minecraft can be seen as fairly positive and influential moving forward. And what uh, Rosenfeld has done with that score, I think, is beautiful and brilliant and uh, fits the game extremely well. Mm -hmm. 
I feel like such a heel for actually never having played that game. The closest I got was Dragon Quest Builders, because, you know, I love all things Dragon Quest, but yeah, no, I could totally see that. That's that's pretty cool, but I am not one of those 200 million people, so I guess I, I that's just one other click I don't belong in. Oh well. As I hang my head down in shame. So, yeah, the I was also trying to be polite and not be the one like, yeah, I'm going to barge into this conversation and talk about my thing first, but you kind of set it up. Metroid Prime is kind of that very next thing and sort of, what can I say about it that a lot of people won't say about the game or the music? It was just in a different world for me. I mean, you know, playing some version of Metroid from the beginning, I was just, I was really kind of blown away, like by the presentation and just how it ran on the GameCube. So when, you know, from the moment you fire it up, um, the very first thing I was struck by is just how eerie and creepy the music was. It was just like, oh my gosh, what is this? What am I about to get into? This is going to be awesome. I just remember the whole presentation was just like so mind blowing. And it's like it, every aspect from the vocalizations of the creatures to just like the music that plays for the various parts of that prime world. It's, it's just really amazing. I mean, the boss battles were epic. It just everything about it was just amazing. And, um, you know, and it's one of those things where even now I, in between takes like recording of these songs like i just there be times where i'm just thinking about that i mean well i'm not doing uh, justice by trying to whistle it but it, it's just yeah it's a really cool soundtrack and it's one that stayed with me obviously up until this point in my life considering it was the first metroid game we had seen new metroid game we had seen in quite some time i mean super metroid was what 94 and then we don't see a metroid game until metroid fusion and metroid prime in the same year in 2002 next gen console or, or jumping two generations of console completely missing the, the 64 and going right to gamecube I was the same way. It blew my mind. And to be able to see Samus in like third person and first person and the shift and then going into the morph ball and the the world that they had created, all of the scanning technology that they have to do. And I mean, it's it's still basically the same game with the same structure, but the way that they twisted it is amazing. And that music is unbelievable. Like it is, you are absolutely right in saying it's unbelievably sort of eerie and creepy and it sets the mood really well. And I mean, the other thing I guess I want to say about it is, you know, I've never been like the Resident Evil type or like any of those sort of intentional horror game people, but there was something at times really scary. And I think the only other game that I could compare it to, which was trying to be intentionally so was like my experience with Doom 64, right? Like I remember playing that and like there were moments where it's like, holy crap, I'm going to die. Like, you know, you you feel that it's like the palpable tension or whatever. But Metroid had that in spades too. Like there, you know, there are moments where it's like, you just know, man, do I have all of the, the missiles and like all of the, the gear that I need for this battle? Because if not, I'm going to have my ass handed to me. So yeah, it kind of makes me want to reconnect my uh gamecube and play it again for old time's sake you maybe they'll port that. it over to the switch at some point oh they probably will well metroid 4 is coming out for switch soon and there oh. is talks of this kind of legacy edition of some of the previous metroid games all of the three prime games basically being wrapped into one similar to what they did with the mario all-stars game so we could be seeing prime make a a triumphant return to nintendo in uh switch form so hopefully we'll uh we'll see something like that anthony anything to say about metroid yeah it's interesting i never really played a lot of metroid prime or, and I never really played a lot of Metroid, but I loved watching people play Metroid. So one of my favorite pastimes is if I'm not playing a video game, I love watching people play video games, like no problem. So when I was growing up, 
Um, I would often go over to friends or families, uh, and if they had a, a system, I didn't need to play. I'd watch. And uh, the music in Metroid is creepy. <laughs> like, I distinctly remember watching the, SNES, uh, the Super Nintendo version, and I wasn't, like, fixated on the screen because... Just the music alone was so eerie and very alien-esque almost, where it was just that constant, like, and, uh, like, that really was off-putting. And I had uh, no idea about the franchise, I guess, if you will, but I knew that Metroid was the person with the gun on their arm and the big shiny helmet. And so uh, I have always... I know. And then, well, and I think what really piqued my attention or made me interested in metroid was the fact that there was the gender reveal of yes Samus as a girl and i didn't learn that until early university because i think i was talking about video games and i was like yeah there's not a lot of female-led video games and somebody was like samus and i was like samus is a girl <laughs> and then i kind of discovered that so yeah i can definitely appreciate the metroid music i think it's very creepy i think it really adds something to the game even though i'm not a huge fan of it i'll watch people play metroid like non-stop so it's pretty great. Anthony, let's jump into your first choice for this episode. Okay, so I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the first video game that I ever saw. So, and it's all tied to my cousins. Like, I just distinctly remember going over to my cousins, and they had Nintendo, and they had three video games. They had Super Mario Brothers, the Duck Hunt one, and then Mega Man 2, and this game called Athena. <laughs> which nobody really knows about. And when I looked up the Wikipedia, it was the ninth best-selling game, I think, out of ten video games for, like, 1986. So it wasn't even, like, a crazy popular game here in North America. I think it had a little bit more uh, presence in Japan. But I distinctly remember the music and playing it at my cousin's house. And it just Athena, the goddess uh, from Greek mythology, is dropped into this world and she's beaten all these beasts. It almost had like pitfall type playability where you would scale across, but then you would also go down and up and go to different terrains. The music is great. I can't even find on the wiki who did the music for it. But what I did find, and what I was telling you guys about, is the box art for the Japanese release of the game, and it is S-E-X-Y. <laughs> like, I do not remember that. <laughs> like, that was not the Athena that I recognized. And then the funniest part is, as I was reading, like, the breakdown of what happens in the video game, the first thing it says is, Upon landing, unarmed and nearly nude, the princess only has her kicks to fend off the approaching monsters. Look at the box art, which just has Athena in a red bikini and this pointy sword. And then I look at the gameplay. She is 100% nearly naked. And, like, the thing is, you're collecting armor. You collect a helmet, uh, armor, leggings, things, and these... And, like, I never equated it, but she totally is nude in the game. And I think one of this... Uh, this revelation, which just happened today, and I think that's why I'm so shooketh, is that my entire idea of this like sweet-natured, nostalgic video game, I'm just like, oh my god, female empowerment, it was about Athena, she was running around killing those beasts, and she was grabbing everything, it was great, and now I'm like, oh, it's like early anime porn, and <laughs> I completely missed that. So, um, yeah, I guess that's an interesting turn of events that my, like, once cherished memory of Athena the video game has now been kind of sullied with internet porn. I mean, but what you just described is, like, almost every anime ever produced, right? So, you know. Totally. And <laughs> I think I, I just, again, I'm just like, wee! Sometimes I'm a little naive about things. Like, I will miss things in uh, context. So I, it's more of lighthearted nature. I'm not slut-shaming. I am so sex-positive. And even though this Athena is on the cover with a bathing suit, I can't help but acknowledge that a male has constructed this video game. It was extremely popular in Japan. It was one of their biggest arcade hits, apparently, of the year that it was released. 
I mean, we have to think about the era that it was created. I mean, it makes sense that this is of that sort of genre of anime or cartoon animation in Japan where women are scantily clad or not clad at all and are just running around and are very of one specific note. I mean, that is why the Samus reveal in Metroid 1 for NES was such a big thing because you are naturally putting on gender roles and stereotypes to protagonists and side characters and love interests in these video games. I mean, it it happens in all sorts of media, and Athena definitely is not alone. I mean, it's, it, looking at the box art, it is definitely playing to a specific demographic. And considering that you're trying to collect armor as opposed to having it in the beginning and it kind of falling off throughout the game, yeah, they're addressing something right up front. Like, yeah, we're getting in here because this is a, a very sexy character who has powers. We'll clothe her later on, but for now, she starts off barely clothed. I should note that as you go on and you collect your clothing armor and you get hit, it falls off. <laughs> so well, I was getting ready dude. to say that that's not so unlike uh, Metroid in the sense that you're <laughs> gathering power ups as you go along. But Metroid doesn't. I mean, Samus doesn't no. actually. Uh, lose them once you get it you get it <laughs> no it's like if you hit one of those beasts it's all of a sudden whoop there goes your helmet whoop, there go your wings whoop there goes your top even the the box art what you guys looked up or don what you looked up in the japanese box art and then if you see the north american box art it's the typical video game what you would see in the 80s is that like the cartoon aesthetic it's uh the lettering is very stylized and then it just has no reference to nearly nude athena at all again but then again i'm like looking at the the start screen and she's just in a bra like how did I, what am i oh sometimes i'm naive that's really i'm i'm incorrigible i'm looking at a so the the U.S. version is like this, as you mentioned, Anthony, stylized as this golden woman, almost like Wonder Woman-esque with a sword aloft. And then there's like a Japanese back cover, and it's completely anime, very different. Yeah, that's a weird sort of juxtaposition there. <laughs> I, Interesting. I love that shit, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we're on board. Yeah. <laughs> Well, here's my second choice uh, for today's episode, and this was something I didn't originally include in my first list, but I do believe it came up as a discussion point in our last episode, and for me, I really want to talk a little bit about Earthbound, which I'm kind of, as I was progressing through my video game playing uh, in the first three selections, I'm reverting back here, and I'm just talking about one of my favorites from the SNES uh, generation. Earthbound is Mother 2 in the Mother series of video games. Uh, Mother started in Japan. And what happened with Earthbound is that they were able to port over their composers from the original game. And they've got Kiichi Suzuki and Hirokazu Tanaka as the main composers. And Suzuki is this really cool musician, singer, songwriter from Japan, co-founded one of Japan's most uh, influential rock bands, Moon Riders, and was brought in to do music for Mother and Earthbound, uh, and was really sort of twisting things on its head and doing stuff completely differently and really wanted to morph things. And I believe I talked briefly about that in, in the last episode, but... I'm going to go a little bit more into it here. They had two assistant composers as well, uh, Hiroshi Kanazu and uh, Toshiyuki Ueno. Uh, I don't know exactly what the split of work was, but I think the primary focus whenever anybody talks about Earthbound is looking at Suzuki and, and his work. They were really able to do a ton of different work with Earthbound because obviously moving from SNES to SNES, uh, going from 8 to 16-bit, you open up basically 100% more music slots and you're able to do a lot more with the technology at the time so what they wanted to do was go really avant-garde and really different it, i mean obviously the game itself is very different it is almost like this americanized set rpg there's definitely the the japanese rpg influences but you are you're not in a fantasy world there's not steampunk elements which you would typically see in something like final fantasy 6 and uh, what they were really doing with this is kind of setting you in middle America and you are in cities or small towns and going about and they were able to really play off a lot of uh, those types of tropes in working with the music. And one of the, the highlights I would say with this video game is their use of blues and jazz 
and how they brought in this Blues Brothers influenced band called the Runaway Five, and they did a few numbers uh, within the game, which were very sort of bluesy and uh, very Americana. They also were doing things with jazz in, in some of their other locations. They kind of twisted some things around and they had some coffee shops, which had jazz sort of style um, feels to them. There's a little bit of blues within the game as well. So again, they're what Suzuki was really able to do and Tanaka, they were able to really take those sort of standard staples of American music, twist them and put them into this really funky video game. One of the really big things I want to talk about with Earthbound though, and I know we've talked about this a couple times and how we want to get into this subject a little bit more so maybe this is going to be our first foray into it is the use of sampling straight up stealing and plagiarizing and utilizing other artists work into what uh, basically is some of the the mainstays of earthbound's music for example there's a part of the game where the band of heroes is joined by this massive kind of sphinx-like character called dungeon man he's a guy who loves dungeons uh, very self-referential in the game very meta within earthbound so he's talking about building dungeons and he turns himself into a massive dungeon so you kind of walk through him and you go through all these mages within the guy really really sort of weird until you get to the point where you see like his face embedded into the stone while you're going through dungeon man's dungeon you see a yellow submarine blatant reference to the beatles but as has the character joins you you there's this really funky music riff that plays as you walk around the main world map and if you match it up with sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band the reprise of that it's essentially ringo's drum intro One, two, It is beat for beat, note for note, pulled directly from the Beatles and put into this section of the game. They did that also with some of John Lennon's solo work. They pulled in the Monty Python uh, and now, or I believe it's Flying Circus and the intro for that TV show is they pulled a clip there and put it into the intro of the game where you're constructing your character names and like your food likes and all that. And then one of the things that they did, there's a, a cafe, I believe it's in Foreside, which is one of the big cities in the game. And they pulled the Little Rascals theme, tweaked it a little bit overlaid it with the Star Spangled Banner in 16-bit form, and they just have it kind of playing on loop in this really sort of weird, jazzy, tw like, twisted way. And... There's a ton of actual examples within the game where the the composers just pulled the samples and blatantly used them. And this was kind of a common thing I've been reading about more and more in video games and in, in Japan, where it seemed like there was this blatant use of licensed music or other people's stuff and with no real acknowledgement or recognition and no royalties were paid. So it was kind of like a wild west for a period of time where people were just getting away with whatever. Me being whatever I was when Earthbound came out 12, 13. I mean, obviously I wasn't as well versed as I was as I am now into things like the Beatles or some of these uh, obscure clips like Brian Eno is a, another one that gets pulled in uh, into Earthbound. So now going back and revisiting these songs i can start pulling on it's like all right this is definitely sounds like this and there's a great compilation video of somebody who put all of them together somewhere on youtube and you can just see the the blatant ripoffs uh, that go into this soundtrack but it's still an amazing soundtrack and it still has a huge impact for me and i i don't want to disparage the the original content and the emotional notes that this thing hits i mean there's some huge emotion when it comes to earthbound in the game but i can't get myself beyond the, the both aspects of it that there is this great soundtrack this great score this amazing music that is hugely influential and impactful and emotional but there's also this other side of it where it is pretty sinister and pretty plagiaristic when it comes to what the uh, the composers were doing 
That's really fascinating. I was just reading a little bit about how the composers were listening to a lot of the Beach Boys and how that also was influential. So I agree, it's a really fine line when you are saying it's inspiration versus just blatantly stealing. And it sounds like there's some blatant stealing going on. But uh, it's not the first time I've heard of that, especially given the time frame, like that 90s period when you said there was a lot of weird maybe not stealing but there was a weird sharing of music between platforms and artists and making its way into video games it's i'd be interested to do a little bit of historical work on the soundtracks of video games in the 90s it's funny how all these things end up being kind of connected and i guess given the time period of the game it it kind of brings this point home for me too so going off tangent for a bit, but I promise I'll bring this back. One of the things I've been kind of uh, frustrated by for quite some time is the difficulty of trying to find anything De La Soul on vinyl or whatever. Turns out that a lot of their use of sampling was uh, before legal framework for how that should work was really well established. And one of the key things that keeps any of that new that music from being put on vinyl or whatnot again, is the the list of people that would come with their hands out in lawsuits the second, you know, like more uh, money is being generated from those albums. And it makes me wonder, because I've heard people talk about like, you know, Ness and Earthbound and, you know, obviously from a, as a character from the very first Smash Brothers and like on through, like, well, why don't they ever put it back on the Nintendo? And hearing you talk about like what it's pulling from makes me wonder if it's not, another example of the exact same thing where it's like the second they reproduce it you've got like you know paul mccartney or whoever actually owns like the the beatles masters and like you know all those other things coming with like you know lawsuit in hand like hey you remember how you stole our music or like you know sampled us without attribution some time ago like yeah we want our money now and that may be a thing maybe that is the situation and this is where to loop it back where I find a lot of video game bootleg vinyl is happening because of this very, very same reason. is most likely they can't press those vinyls because it's going to cost more money unless they charge like $75 for the vinyl, which some of them might. But, I mean, for a select group of people who want the Earthbound soundtrack, is it really worth doing all that pressing and legal? Yeah, so that's a, a really interesting... Uh, stage that has been set and I'm now starting to see different parts of it with this information and this like context it really makes things kind of pop a little bit more and makes make, some things make a lot more sense mm-hmm. it all comes back to money the answer to all of your questions is money <sighs> I thought the answer to and solution to all of life's problems was alcohol Anthony, and unfortunately it cost a lot there? of money too so <laughs> yeah are. exactly yeah. Jason, go ahead and uh, hit us with your second pick here. So in a way, my final selection is a bit of a cop-out. So most of the, all the, the other soundtracks and whatnot and uh, music I've been talking about has been Nintendo property. And then it, like, it made me think about, like, well, is there anything from any other platform that I've played that like sort of grabbed my interest? And it made me think about a few things. Um, stuff that I've never played and then stuff that I played in like arcades. Like... For example, although I don't remember very well what songs were put on the NBA jams, like Stand Up Arcade, like I remember that there, like you know, there were lots of licensed music that was incorporated in that. And you know, while you're sitting there shooting like these crazy baskets and like making these crazy dunks, you know, like there was a lot of uh, licensed music that was kind of like charging up that whole uh, scenario. And although I never played like GTA, again, same thing. It's like you've got this gameplay, but then in the background, you've got like actual music that's like sort of keying up these moments. And it made me think, well, was there any other song uh, like game that I played that I liked that was sort of like that? And the first thing that came to mind was Burnout Paradise. I haven't played that game in a good number of years, although I, 
you know, I have it for, I guess, the Xbox that I have, the last generation Xbox or whatever. But, the, you know, the beautiful thing about that, and I'm kind of surprised I didn't have the epiphany to start playing again in this pandemic, is it was a great game of destruction, right? Because you got this racing game, and it's like, on its face, it seems kind of straightforward, but then there's like this whole mode where like you're basically trying to create the most sensational crashes. And that sort of thing is perfect for the situation we're in now because it's like you could do all this devastation and destruction without any real consequences and then key the music you've got all this really sort of like super amped up music in the background that's like supporting all this destruction i mean any of the songs that like it cycles through in the game and that you kind of have a little bit more control over later in the game is like you've gone to all these places I mean, it's great examples of, like, rock and alternative. Um, I mean, I guess some pop, a little bit of hip-hop, but not so much. But just, like, all these songs are, like, just really high on adrenaline. And, like, as you're trying to create these dozens of car pileups or whatever, it's just, it's perfect. So, although it's not necessarily, like, you know, any one uh, score or any one artist that's creating this motif it really does make you feel like it does two things simultaneously it makes you feel like you're in a car i mean because you know you have somewhat control over the radio but then it totally takes you out of reality because again you're causing all this mayhem and like you're putting the controller down and hey everything's fine <laughs> there's no problem here But all the while, I mean, it's it's that music that sort of wants, like, I, I don't know if it makes you want to uh, make a better crash, but it really does support that effort. So for me, that was like, I guess, the no brainer as far as like games that manage to incorporate licensed music into it. I mean, looking at the soundtrack listing here, I mean, this music, it definitely isn't hindering your desire to go and crash some cars. It is a lineup. Holy cow. Indeed. You've got Paradise City by Guns N' Roses and oh. uh, Rusty Cage by Soundgarden. You've got Epic by Faith No More. You've got Route 66 oh. by Depeche Mode. Like, you've got some classic stuff. Um, Alice in Chains is in there. And then you've got things by NERD. You get Avril then jumps out there randomly with Girlfriend. Like, it is. Oh, but that is her, like, pop punk song. <laughs> That is a good soundtrack. I mean, I wasn't into the Burnout games, but this one would get me involved for sure. I mean, it, it's just, I don't know. It really does feel appropriate for right now. I mean, like, just being able to take out all of your frustration on something without <laughs> any consequences, I think what the world needs right now. Jason, was the music, were you able to tune it in like the radio on GTA, or was it just all random? So... I'm trying to remember, and I didn't go back and play it to test exactly what the method was. I believe you had that kind of control, and I couldn't remember if it was like messing with like the D-pad or something like that, or what the function was. But I'm pretty sure that once you had all that music, it could sort of cycle through because, like, you know, for some people, maybe Paradise City won't do it for them, but like one of these other tracks will. I do kind of remember being able to control what you crashed to. Okay. Um, but how you did it exactly, I'd have to go replay it to, to sort of totally refresh myself. I'm just going to say that I really would like to smash a car to Avril Lavigne's girlfriend. That's <laughs> <laughs> just the life I live. So Yeah, yeah. It's smash something to Avril Lavigne's girlfriend. Smashy, smashy. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Anthony, what is your uh, second selection here? My second selection is Zelda 2 The Adventures of Link. So I chose all NES games just because that really was the start of my love of video game music and 8-bit, and I still come back to it a lot. So these are definitely four that are in heavy rotation, but the Zelda 2 Adventures of Link, I would say is not necessarily high on the amount of times I listen to it, but I like to come back to it because it's the one of the first games, or it is the first Zelda game that I ever had contact with. Um, and I think it's such a fascinating game, considering that the soundtrack is 
similar enough to the first one, but it has enough of a difference that it's its own beast. But similar to other games that came out around this time, specifically video game sequels, what I like about it is that it takes what it had in the first one and it builds on it. And it also introduces different concept in gameplay that's kept throughout the entire series. I don't know, I just always have a strong affinity for the Zelda 2 game. It's one of those games that I didn't play because, I think I mentioned in the last episode, I was always so intimidated by the tasks and not knowing where to go. And I tend to like completion video games, so I really like to complete everything. And there were way too many things in Zelda that I couldn't complete that left it open and I was just like anxiety (laughs) so I think the interesting thing about Zelda games for me became a bit of a personal journey that it was almost like I had to work towards getting into them and I had to kind of work towards understanding them and I have such a respect for the game franchise at this point that even Zelda 2 has huge nostalgic vibes for me I think it's also just a really fun soundtrack, and it just is a really peaceful 8-bit soundtrack. I think that's what I like most about a lot of the Zelda music. It is It can be tense in those boss musics when it ramps up, but a lot of the music is just background, very nice lull music that you want when you're playing. I recently got a Switch and I'm playing Yoshi's Crafted World. And I don't know why it makes me think of it, but that music is very cute and it's very adorable. But I find I have to turn it off (laughs) because uh, I am getting too, like, it's too cute and too grating. Whereas the Zelda music I really find is very, it's so calming. And I don't know, I think maybe it's my own anxiety with the game that I'm working through the music maybe I don't know let's go into it how do you guys feel about Zelda 2 this is where the shame of our Minecraft uh, conversation comes roaring Ah. back so Zelda 2 is like one of those rare like I'm a huge Zelda uh, person I I think I've played just about all of the games in some way shape or form and beat most of them Zelda 2 is like kind of like that white whale for me though man because I, it's the, the hardest game ever. <laughs> it's it's hard, and I never had the patience to go very far in it. I mean, like even the first Zelda, like the first the first Zelda is pretty straightforward. Like once you sort of, you know, you get your bearings around like those few stages that can like change up depending on direction and stuff. But that second Zelda is just like. I it frustrated me so much that I never gave it really the time that it probably deserved. And so I don't know that I have much to add in terms of appreciation for the music because I couldn't appreciate the game. If I mean, we could be talking about pretty much every other incarnation of Legend of Zelda and I'd probably have something to say except for that version of the game, which, you know, my shame. We talked about it in the first episode, talked about, referenced it here. It is intimidating. It is damn hard. It is the hardest game I think I've ever had to play or ever played, period. And I have not finished it. And I know we talked about that people have found that now going back to it, because you can access it on the on the Switch through their sort of virtual console um, NES system, and it has save state, so it's easier to get through. But when I was young, trying to play through that with only a few lives, and there's only a few one-ups within the game, and the amount of times I saw Ganon come on my screen and say, it's it, game over, like you can't go back, it's, it's brutal. So um, the music itself for me in that game is iconic. I can recall tons of tunes just thinking about like the town uh, music or going into a house and then the dungeon theme. And I think a lot of the, the lore from Zelda 2 is a huge influence for Breath of the Wild. I think those two games connect so well together because you see like in the in the first game like the the Octoroks coming out of the sand and then that kind of comes up in in uh breath of the wild and i think there's a huge amount of connections and lore from zelda 2 that goes in there so it's it's interesting to see kind of the influences there but for for my money i'd say zelda 2 has one of those really cool fun interesting scores in a game that you wanted to focus on something else so bad because it was so damn hard and because you were just trying to struggle getting through it left, right, and center. I mean, 
to all the different mechanics in there. Like you had to get the candle to light up certain areas or else you're being bombarded by invisible enemies. You had to get certain items to, to get elsewhere. The swamp where you're like going slowly and you're kind of just inching your way forward and things are coming out all over the place. If you stray off the path on the main world map, these random encounter battles show up and it could be either like a slime from uh, Dragon Warrior all the way or Dragon Quest all the way up to like a bear and it's even even harder so it's it's a crazy game it's got a really good score yeah i mean akito nakazuka has done brilliant work with that video game and has had and he wow. did mike tyson's punch yes i was gonna say there's that's quite the the legacy there to go back and get involved like doing punch out excite bike ice climber pilot wing 64 yeah i love 8-bit music that's what i say like i think i have such a not just a nostalgic art for it but i think i have a real respect for the fact that you have to create music only eight using eight notes and that's what i had said before is that it's just a challenge and i i find that really interesting and i'm finding actually a lot more artists are coming back to the 8-bit format like not necessarily in huge numbers and like, I don't think it's, uh, you know, a genre that's taking over the airways right now. But I do know that each year there's always, like, 8-bit albums that come out that are very independent released. It's just, uh, I like that stuff. Uh, one of my next games I'm going to be playing is Breath of the Wild. Oh, so, enjoy. Yeah, okay. I know. And I, I'm, it's so funny how every person I tell who has played it and is a big fan of the Zelda, it's almost like they're just, like, they're so happy for me. Like, people are genuinely like... Oh, good for you. That's so nice you're going to play that game. Well, thanks guys for your uh, video game picks there for the second time around. Hopefully we've captured kind of our origin stories and our love of video games extremely well in the last two episodes. And we can really reach out to those fans who listen, who have that same love of video games and connect with them. And hopefully we'll hear back from our fans. If you are listening to this and you want to tell us about some of the soundtracks uh, from your favorite video games, uh, go ahead and let us know via our social media accounts. Uh, you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at EvenTheScorePod or send us an email. Uh, our email address is even the score podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from everybody we're going to be talking about video games extensively it is one of the ties that bind us together uh the three of us here and we definitely do want to talk more video game music more video games in general moving forward uh especially considering now that anthony has finally joined us in the switch community and honestly it feels kind of fitting right i mean this is the year of the anniversaries so oh yeah between zelda mario pokemon metroid i think yeah a lot of things are having their anniversaries this year so it is a good year to be into the nintendo family of products that is for damn sure Mm -hmm. of course we want our listeners to uh rate and review our podcast on your podcast app of choice go ahead and give us five stars send us a review we'd love to hear back from you we'd love to get as much promotion of our episodes as possible we're getting a lot of great feedback so continue on to send that in to us we really do appreciate you listening and just providing us with whatever you can so that we're better and that we're able to provide a great quality product out to to everyone there um go ahead and find us and subscribe on your podcast app of choice we are on apple Podcasts, spotify google play stitcher whatever you listen to out there we are somewhere there i think that will do it for us for this episode i of course want to thank anthony and jason for being with me on this episode thank you to you both thank you dan well thank you and thank you to you both i i always love these conversations oh no thank you jason it's always lovely to get together on our recording days and chat about these uh, random tangents that we get into. And that is it for us here at Even the Score. So go ahead and uh, have yourself a great day. Thank you very much for listening. Take care. Hey, hey, you, you, I'm like a girlfriend.